Welcome to the Wise Women Diaries podcast. This is where shame and victimhood die. I am a woman that questions everything, so this podcast is a reflection of that. Here we speak on non-mainstream perspectives, like healing our childhood wounds, learning to trust ourselves, the voice of fear versus intuition, and how children are our teachers. We discuss what it looks like to own your power as a woman and step out of the medical paradigm. That's why I am obsessed with interviewing women who trust their bodies and babies in home birth and free birth and their wild journey from maiden to mother. Ultimately, this podcast is for women who want to thrive and have inner peace, learning how to take radical responsibility for their life and shed victimhood for good. Today we have Cassie, my amazing, beautiful friend that is an authentic midwife. And it's a very special story because she's 41 and is going to be talking about four of her births and she's a midwife. So she's coming from this vantage point of being in her forties midwife. She knows the truth of birth now, the truth of postpartum, all of it. And so it's a treat to talk to someone from this vantage point. And first let's have Cassie. What about saying a little intro? Oh, you didn't tell me we were going to do an intro. Um, thanks so much for having me. Um, I love talking about my births um, because they've just shaped who I am. And um, yeah, so I'm Cassie. I was born in the East Coast, got married super young, was raised really religious. And um, that informed a lot of my decision making in my life. And now I am out of that strict paradigm and um, I've been divorced for about five years and that was kind of when I really started figuring out who I am and what I'm about and was allowed the freedom to really explore that and it's been a really hard and beautiful process. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I love knowing you in, in this stage of your life because what if I knew you 10 years ago? Like you're totally different mm -hmm. and actually the first time I met you, we were at a women's circle. This was maybe two years ago now. And I was just like, who is this beautiful woman? There was a draw to you. And I, I couldn't explain why. And I got your phone number from the host of the women's circle, but then I never reached out. And it's just weird. And then we reconnected this year. But I don't know, I trust timing. If I really wanted to connect a year and a half ago, I would have. Mm -hmm. But we're here now. and. Yeah, I love our conversations. We geek out on birth. We geek out on religion because we both have a dogmatic religion past and now we both, you know, have shed that. And we just go nitty gritty, like sex, relationships, mushrooms, all the things. <laughs> all the juicy things. <laughs> yeah. How about painting the picture on who you are at 18, 19 when you get married? Yeah. Um, well... I, I met my, my ex-husband, um, who will just be called my husband because it's just easier than saying ex, but he, he was my husband for a long time, almost 18 years. Um, but I met him when I was 17 and I had been kicked out of my house 
at 17 and sent to live uh, with my parents' friends in Utah because they thought Utah is just going to be the place to be righteous and not make any mistakes. And um, so I end up meeting him just a couple months after I moved there and we connected really fast and had a whirlwind romance after six weeks we wanted to marry each other and looking back now well not now I mean looking back very soon after that I realized like we just wanted to have sex but we couldn't so the only way to have sex is to get married so that's what we did we got married a year after we uh, met and I was 18 and then a few short months after that um, we were sitting in church and I was on the depot shot and I was scheduled to go in the next day to get the shot and my intuition, what I now know is my intuition, but at the time I thought was the spirit, the Holy Spirit was telling me, don't go get the shot. And I look at my husband and I was like, I'm not supposed to get that shot. And so we extrapolate from that, that we're supposed to have a baby. So I... Uh, two weeks after I turned 19, I get pregnant very promptly. And, um, you know, now looking back, I can see that my intuition was telling me to not put hormones in my body. And, um, yeah, so it's, it's kind of, I mean, I love my daughter. <laughs> She's amazing, of course. But just looking back, it's just so interesting what kind of what you choose to do with the information you're given. So uh, I get pregnant, and I'm barely 19, and my pregnant my pregnancy is breeze. Um, I love being pregnant. I used to uh, look at my calendar almost every day because I crossed off the days and I would recount almost every day because I was like, maybe I was wrong about the due date. Maybe it's actually sooner than it is. I was so excited for this baby. Um, we both were. We both were. Even though we were young, we had no money at all. I mean, zero money, but we just were so excited to bring this little soul into our family. Um, so when I was about 33 weeks pregnant, I start itching really badly and I'm just miserable, itching day and night, mostly at night. Um, and I, um, uh, had a really complicated relationship with my mom, always have. And, um, you know, I was going to her for a lot of advice and <laughs> she, she actually did give me some good advice. She had seven babies naturally, never had an episiotomy. So for example, like she wanted me to ask the doctor, ask the doctor if he's going to give you an episiotomy. This is 2002. So, or actually 2001 when I was pregnant. Um, so ask him if he's going to give you an episiotomy because you need to know if that's something he does or not. And I was just like, mom, I don't care if he's going to do it. That's what he's going to do. I listen to my doctor. I do what he says. Okay. You know, and so she just kept bugging me about it. So finally I went in one day for an appointment and I said, um, what's your episiotomy rate? And he said, oh, 98% of first-time moms need an episiotomy. And I was like, okay, cool, good to know. You know, that was my, uh, wow. my, my informed consent discussion with my doctor. So anyway, at 33 weeks, I start itching really badly. My mom is telling me, just call the doctor, call the doctor. So I'm calling and calling, and they are dismissing me. They're telling me, go take a bath, put some lotion on, take an oatmeal bath. You know, and I'm like, I've tried everything, and I am miserable. I am in tears most nights. I thought I had athlete's foot because my hands and my feet were itching. So I'm spraying this like athlete's foot spray every day. I'm soaking in a tub just in tears. I'm like, it's not working. I'm in the tub. I have the oatmeal. It's not working. So anyway, finally, 
they agree to let me, I called them crying because my mom said, just do whatever you can do, you know, cry, make something up, just get in to see them. And so I do, I get in and they said, okay, well, we're going to try this test and see. Um, so days and days go by. I, I call and I'm like, is there any update on the test? And they said, oh no, oh shoot, it looks like we lost it. So then after about a week and a half, they call me and they said, oh goodness, you have cholestasis and you need to be induced today. And I was like, oh, I'm going to have my baby today. I was 38 weeks. I was so excited. So I go in, we do the Cervidil, um, you know, for 12 hours. And I remember in that time, um, the Cervidil was causing some craving. Oh, so my birth plan was no birth plan. My birth plan was listen to the doctor, get the epidural. So that was it. So I go in and I'm having some cramping and I've never had cramping with my period. Like my periods have always been super easy. So I'm just like, what is this sensation? I wasn't used to it. And so I said, I'm in pain. And they said, well, we can give you Demerol. So I take some Demerol. I'm super loopy. And I remember so vividly, I didn't remember the nurse's name. So I called her, you know, I was like, hey, you know, Susie. And she was like, my name is Heather. And I was like, oh, I'm sorry. Well, I, I didn't remember, you know, but I'm, I'm on drugs. And she's You're high. chastising me, Yeah, you know? So anyway, um, so I do that and then they start the Pitocin the next morning and of course I'm not allowed to eat or drink and I, you know, follow that rule like a good little girl and they kept asking me, you're 19, right? Uh-huh, yep. Uh, are you married? And I'm like, my husband is here in the room with me. Yes, I'm married. I mean, they asked me probably three, four times. Why? I don't know, but it just felt very demeaning. And even then I remember thinking, why are they asking me this? This is rude. So anyway, um... So I get the Pitocin. Everything is hunky-dory. It was 9 a.m. You got Pitocin before an epidural? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So 9 a.m. I get the Pitocin. Nothing is happening. About 3 p.m. Um, I'm not feeling anything. And then my water breaks on its own. And I was like, oh, that was, a, that was cool. Something happened. My water broke. And they were like, oh, okay, cool. Your water broke. And, you know, I don't even remember if they told me anything. But anyway, so at three, my water breaks. Nothing is really happening. And maybe it's like four or five or so. And I said, you know, I, I think I want to get the epidural because um, I'm feeling some stuff and it's a little uncomfortable and I don't want to feel pain. <laughs> and so they're like, okay, cool. Well, it's going to be a little while, you know. So in between that time, within just a few hours, I went from, you know, they checked me. I was like three, four centimeters. And then I went from three to, uh, I think about a nine in just a couple hours. So in that time, I don't know what, to, I've never learned. I, I went to the class, but I didn't listen because I was like, well, I'm just going to, you know, get my epidural. So it doesn't matter. So I just curled up in a ball and I cried. I didn't know what to do with the intensity that was rushing through my body. So I pour, I just feel so bad for this version of me. My ex, my husband was just like, he didn't know what to do. He's just holding my hand. Nobody, t- the nurses didn't come in and say, why don't you get up? Why don't you move? Breathe with me. Nope. I was just curled up in a little ball crying on the side of my bed. Like, when is he coming? When am I going to get my epidural? So sad. So, um, wow. Yeah, so they come in, they give me my epidural, and then right after they check me, and they're like, oh my goodness, you're nine and a half. We shouldn't have given you the epidural. And I was like, God, I'm so glad he did, because I was not prepared. And and that can be a trauma too, when you're not prepared for the pain, to feel the pain. I'm so glad that I, that 19-year-old version of me who knew nothing, you know, I'm glad that I didn't have to like feel that intensity of pushing out a baby, because I wouldn't have understood. I didn't know what the ring of fire was. I'd never heard that. I didn't know anything. So, um, 
so anyway, I push for like 30 minutes. She comes out. I get an episiotomy, right? And um, for no reason. A first-time mom pushing for 30 minutes. I mean, I'm sure the episiotomy expedited things, but what, 10 minutes? You That's know? crazy. Yeah. Uh-huh. So, um, and I have video of it. So, like, I've, t- I've looked at the video and I've timed it. I've read my records. Like, it was 30 minutes of pushing. It was crazy that I even had an episiotomy. Just so automatic cut. At yep. least your doctor was honest with you and he said mm-hmm. 98% though. It wasn't even my doctor, but even oh, so. Oh, yeah, it was it. his partner. It doesn't matter. Like, my other, my doctor didn't know me either. So yeah. it, it, it didn't matter who was yeah. there. It was a stranger. So anyway, and then I remember um, I was just so excited. I, I cried. I was so happy to excited to breastfeed. And um, and then my ex-husband told me later, I don't remember this, but he told me because he said he almost passed out. He saw the doctor's hand go up inside of me up to his elbow. I mean, it probably wasn't his elbow, but almost because he did a manual extraction of a placenta. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Crazy, right? So every, I mean, postpartum was, was, uh, was fine. I was in so much pain from the episiotomy, so much pain. They sent me home with painkillers, but they didn't work. I think I took one. It didn't work. So I was just like dealing with it and it was really not that fun. Um, there was a lot going on in my life at that time. My sister had been really sick, my younger sister, and she was in the process of dying and she died about two months after my daughter was born. And so my postpartum time was just, was really stressful um, thinking about that and just trying to, you know, be there for my family and also having this new baby. And, um, so then I entered this year of this really dark, deep depression. Um, so wow. yeah, I wasn't, I, you know, and my, my mom came to visit and within five days she was there and we were taking, going to Target you know, to go shopping and she was dragging me around to the grocery store and she had seven kids, but she wasn't like, rest, I'll take care of you, I'll go to Target. She was like, let's go do this and let's go do that. And I can still feel my vagina throbbing because it was so, it was hurting so bad. I just wanted to rest, you know, and my poor vagina that was cut open and sewn shut, you know, was just in a lot of pain. And anyway, so breastfeeding was amazing and, um, and yeah, she's, she is an amazing child to have been raised by a mother who knew nothing and who was very selfish. Um, she turned out to be an incredible woman. But yeah, so then fast forward, uh, we were living in Utah then, and then fast forward, uh, we moved to New York City about three years after that. And I, oh, sorry, actually, That's this okay. is a really important part. So fast forward, um, about two and a half years, my sister, my older sister is pregnant with her first and her husband's a chiropractor. So they're kind of on the fringe and they're so weird and they do all these weird things. And, um, she decides she's going to have a birth center birth. And my parents' best friend is an ER doctor. And he was like, Oh, birth centers, those are so dangerous and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, I see all these bad cases coming in from birth centers and home births that are just, that have gone wrong. And so we're just in total fear for her. And so we're just trying to talk her out of this, you know? And I kind of came around first and I was just like, you know, at least she's going to be, because I think it was attached to a hospital. At least she's going to be, you know, close to a hospital if anything goes wrong, so it'll be fine. Well, then my sister, you know, has some some upsetting appointments with her midwives and she decides to fire them and hire a home birth midwife. She doesn't tell anybody except me and a couple of her friends. 
And I was like, oh my gosh. And I had a, a girlfriend who was an OB nurse. And so I call her up and I'm like, Angie, you know, tell me what's, what's the deal with home birth. And she's like, it's a really bad idea. You know, a lot of bad things happen. And so I'm just in fear for my sister. So I'm telling her this, you know, totally projecting all my fear onto my poor sister, but she's very calm and very grounded. So she's like, you know what? Thank you. I appreciate your concern, but will you just read this one book so you can just understand why I made this decision? It's a really good book. It's a memoir. It's an easy read. So I was like, okay, fine. I can do that. So I got the book from the library and I opened the book and I read it cover to cover so fast. I was so enthralled. It's called um, Baby Catcher. Memoirs of a Modern Day Midwife, and that book changed my whole entire life. I shut the book, and I was like, I must be a midwife. And that was like, I was 22 years old. So then I kind of researched a little bit about becoming a midwife, and I was like, well, it's a little work, and schooling, and I have this kid, and so then I learned about doulas, and I was like, I'm gonna be a doula. So I enrolled in a doula training that was about a month later, and I attended my first birth a month after that. Whoa. Yeah. Let's speak on um, you witnessing births as a doula in the system. Oh, man. Okay, so actually my first births were when I was um, 13 and 16. I saw my, my brother and sister come into the world. Oh, So that whoa. was really cool, yeah. So those were my first births as a doula because my, my, my dad was, like, taking a nap in the chair, and so I was with my mom. I was, like, getting her her ice chips and, like, you know, just being right there. We were so excited for this baby, both of the babies. But, um, yeah, so that was kind of my first introduction to birth. And my mom just makes it look so easy. I mean, seriously, she didn't make noise. Now, knowing what I know about birth and seeing all these births, I'm like, how did she do that in a hospital bed on her back, not getting up and moving around? It's crazy, but she did it. Um, she's just a champ. So, yeah, so births in the system. Um, I attended a few births in Utah and then right after I became a doula, we moved to New York, New York city. And that is a whole different ball of wax. It's a horrible place to give birth. Home birth is fine, but the hospitals in New York are awful. Like I was traumatized every single birth I went to in the hospital. I would come home totally traumatized and I'd have a word for it. Cause now it's like trauma, trauma, trauma. It's so, you know, big, but back then, I just was sad and disgusted and I would vent to my husband and I, I didn't know what I was witnessing. I was just like, what, what am I seeing here? What is going on? Like women just being violated left and right. Nurses yelling at mothers, like the fingers in the vagina stretching open their, their vaginas as the moms are pushing. Women saying no, no, no. And them saying, we don't care. We're doing it anyway. I mean, all the time. It was terrible. Medical rape constantly. Constant. Yeah. Yeah, and then when I was talking to other doulas, hearing their stories, and it's like, okay, so this is not just what I'm seeing, it's what you're all seeing too. Um, and when I became a doula, I was so excited. My excitement just, I don't know, it just like radiated, and I just attracted clients to me, and I was 22 years old, and I had clients who were in their 30s and 40s, because a lot of women have babies later in New York, and... Um, Actually, I might have been 23 at that time. Either way, it doesn't matter. I was a baby. Didn't know anything about life. I just was bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and so excited because I knew that this was my life's work. I just knew it. And so anyway, um, at some point we decide, because we're Mormon, um, you must have children. 
and I was super overwhelmed with my daughter. She was really, really difficult because I was a baby and I wasn't being a good parent. I mean, I was a good parent, but you know what I mean? I wasn't... You were doing the I, best you could. I you was didn't know anything. Yes, I was trying. Like, I, I didn't know. I didn't know about, like, take a deep breath. If your kid's throwing a tantrum, take a deep breath and then talk to them. I would just, like, throw a tantrum with her, you know? <laughs> so, um, yeah. So... So she's like four years old and in the height of difficulty. <laughs> Actually, she might have been. Yeah, she was four. And my ex-husband and I are like, hey, like we should have another kid because like she's getting really old and we're supposed to have kids. And I was like, I don't really want another kid. This is about all I can handle. But we just were like, okay, I think that's what we need to do. And so we had, we got, we got pregnant with my son and I was, again, so excited because now I had, like, I didn't want another kid because I knew what it meant, but I wanted to go through the pregnancy and birth process knowing what I now knew. So we get pregnant and I, yeah, I just start researching mothering.com, had these forms. This is, I got pregnant in 2006, long time ago. And um, so we're, um, so I'm on the mothering forums and I'm reading birth story after birth story. I am just devouring everything I can. Um, you know, there wasn't, I don't even know if YouTube, but maybe it was, but I don't know. I didn't use it. So this is the first time that I'm really hearing birth stories other than the birth stories that I'm witnessing as a, as a doula. Um, and I just loved it. And I read them every single day and it really just, it just motivated me and just excited me. So then fast forward, that pregnancy was super easy, super amazing. I found a midwife that I loved. And um, so fast forward to about 33 weeks again, I start itching. And I, oh, so sorry, prior to that, I had done a bunch of liver cleanses because I was like, I'm not going to get this. Cole Stacy's again, I'm going to be super healthy. We were drinking raw milk. We were doing all the things. Um, wow, so you prepared to not get it. Yeah. And you still got it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Because I just... You know, liver, the liver is where you store a lot of anger and resentment. And I had a hard childhood, a hard, hard, hard relationship with my mom. And I didn't ever, not once, did I address any kind of emotional component. Even in my year of depression, it was just, hey, mom, I'm depressed. And she sent me some Prozac in the mail. <laughs> so it's like... Band-Aid was, it. Mm -hmm, yeah, there was no talking about it. There was just, yeah... Um, so now I see that obviously that needed to be addressed, but anyway, so fast forward to 33 weeks and I start itching and I'm just beside myself. Um, you know, I end up, I go on a really strict diet, no fat. I just ate like oatmeal and like chicken breast and rice and broccoli, no seasoning or, you know, seasonings, but no butter or like I have to completely wow. stray away from all fat. And that really did help. It really wow. did. Because my liver was then just able to chill out a bit. And I was taking dandelion and all sorts of herbs and stuff. My midwife was really knowledgeable in that area. And she was also studying to be a homeopath. So, But you were planning a home birth with a second birth. Oh, yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, home birth was the only way. I was so anti-hospital because of all that I had seen and all the trauma. Like there was 0% chance... That, and this plays into the story, that I would go to the hospital. Like nothing would take me to the hospital. So when I start itching, I'm like, okay, we got we to gotta get a hold on this. And um, so I do. And about 37 weeks, I'm 
I, I have this, this, I don't know, flare up. And it was just so bad that I was like, I, I can't do this anymore. Cause it was days without sleeping, days of itching. It's miserable. And, um, I had lost a bunch of weight too. Cause I, my diet was so strict. And I remember so vividly, my friend took me out to lunch and she ordered a whole chicken. And I was like, well, I'll just eat the breast, you know? But then I saw the skin and it looked so toasty and amazing. I just tore, I ate all the skin on the chicken. I was like, I have to eat this. And then I just, it sent me into a tailspin of itching. Like the fat just, oh, it was terrible. Yeah, it was so, but it was so delicious. <laughs> My pregnant body needed that, you know? Yeah, that's why you craved it so much. Yeah, oh man. Because chicken skin is so nutritious. Oh God, yeah. And I've never shied away from fat in my life. Yeah. So anyway, um, so yeah, so my midwife said, you know, I really think you need to go get some tests done. There was a perinatologist in the city who um, was a home birth dad. He had had five home births. And so she really trusted him. And I said, okay, I'll go see him. So we do the test. Um, the test results came back pretty fast. My, my liver levels were very high. He was like, I really would love to do an ultrasound. And that was my only ultrasound of the pregnancy. And I was really resistant, hesitant, but I was like, it's fine. He's almost here. It'll be fine. So he's like, I mean, baby looks fine, but you know, I would really recommend you induce. And I was like, I'm not going to the hospital. He's like, she, she'll be able to induce you at home. And cause he knew, knew her and I was like, okay. And so she was like, all right, let's do this. And so we formulated a plan and I was 37 weeks. I mean, your cervix is not ready to have a baby at 37 weeks. Come on, wow. you know? And I was barely 37 weeks. Like I had just turned 37 weeks. So I was you know, it's like, you could have been pregnant for a month longer if you were oh, 42 weeks. Yeah. Five weeks longer. Yeah. Wow. I know. So she was like, well, we have to soften your cervix. So we did a lot, a bunch of homeopathics. And then ultimately we did, um, she actually, you know what? I lied. I think we started with the Cytotec. She was a CNM, so she could get sight. She had Cytotec and we did it, um, homeopathically. So it was, and it was like the secret. She's like, do not ever tell anybody that I did this for you because this is not, we're not supposed to do this. Like, yeah. it, you know, side attack has major side effects, but we did it in a really gentle way. So I was sipping it. I was sipping water that had it diluted. And then we did homeopathics. She went in for probably 20 minutes, massaged my cervix, opened me up, brought the cervix forward because it was still posterior. I mean, I, she knew that I would have done anything to avoid the hospital. And I... And I appreciate and love her for that. You know, now would I do things differently? Yes. But at the time it was either do this or go to the hospital. And she was serving you. She was totally serving me, even though she knew like, this is not what I normally do, but I know it can be done. And so I will do it for you. We had a really good relationship. So anyway, it ended up being a 40 hour ordeal. So we did all of that. We did, um, you know, they broke my, she broke my water. Um, I think I was probably like four centimeters for a long, long time. We went on walks. I ended up doing, um, press the breast pump for about five hours and that's what did it. That's what finally threw me into labor. So, and then after that, it was just a breeze. Like I loved every second of it, every contraction. I was like, yes, contraction. I loved my labors, all of them. I mean, May 1st, probably not, but, <laughs> but the, the others, it was just every contraction that came. I was like, oh, here's another one. 
And they were kind of looking at me like, you're not even in labor. But I was like, you guys, I just had another contraction. I think it was a little stronger than the last one, you know, because I was just like, this is going to work. And I had so many meltdowns over that 40 hour period of like, I can't go to the hospital. There's no way I'm going to the hospital. The hospitals here are so bad. There's no way. And, um, and they never sat me down and said, look, I think we need to go to the hospital. Never, never. She, it was her and her student. They were just amazing. So, um, and they were exhausted. God, I mean, exhausted. Was it like four or five days? No, no, it was just two days. Okay. But they just, yeah, they just stayed because of the side attack. She didn't want to leave, you know? Yeah. And so she was monitoring the baby pretty closely. And so anyway, yeah, so the breast pumping really threw me into active labor. And then once I was in active labor, I mean, it was probably like five hours of active labor. And I just, it was great. I loved it. I got in the tub. My daughter was in the tub with us. Um, you know, it was amazing. Oh, and I had an IV because they were just like trying everything, like fluids, you know, just, she was just very committed to, to, and I was, I was more committed, but she was, she was really committed to helping me achieve this. And it was beautiful. Um, so yeah, I pushed him out. The fetal ejection reflex just took over. It was amazing. Beautiful. I tore a little bit. Um, it was, yeah, it was just like really straightforward. I did bleed a little bit. I remember, um, I don't remember if she gave me Pitocin or not, but. But yeah, we gave, I gave birth in my tiny little New York City 600 square foot apartment. <laughs> um, At home, but mm -hmm. home induction, which yeah, is so funny. so crazy. But yeah, it was great. And then breastfed and didn't really take care of myself after, but didn't have any depression or anything. It was just, I was just so excited to now be an attachment parent for the first time. Like I wore that kid for 18 months. He didn't even have a stroller. Seriously. Like oh my every wrap you could think of, I bought, I was buying and trading and I just, I loved it all. He co-slept. I mean, my daughter co-slept too, but, but he was just, it was just like, now I know, I see, I, now I know how it's supposed to be. And I did things so differently and cloth diapered and Anyway, just did all the crunchy things. Oh, wow. But what about co-sleeping? Did you get any flack for it? Why did you, mm -hmm. did that just intuitively feel right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so when my daughter was born, I tried putting her in the crib. She didn't want to be in the crib, and so she came into my bed. <laughs> like, that was, that was it. And when you're 19, you're selfish, so you want to sleep. So what is the easiest? Well, okay, so I figured out sideline nursing because when I would wake up to nurse her and sit, I started falling asleep, and I was like, oh! <gasps> I'm going to drop her. She's going to fall off the bed. So I was like, oh, what's a better way? Let me just lay down with her. And I just started breastfeeding laying down and then I would sleep and it was amazing. So that was it. And then she just, and then I tried putting her in a crib. She didn't want to be in her crib, of course. And so she was just in her bed. And so it was like easy as that. It you is know? so simple. It's so simple. That's what I tell people. Like I was so young and stupid, but I just used my instincts. I'm tired. How can I get more sleep? I was selfish, right? So it's like, I'm really tired and uh, this kid needs to eat. So I'm just going to sleep on my arm and you're going to suck my boob. And that's, that's all there is to it. Yeah, but you know what? Having a child that young, you don't have a decade of information or decade mm -hmm. of friends having babies and seeing all of their sleep monitors and sleep training and everything. Mm -hmm. You were ignorant, but it worked for you because you were just instinctual and mm -hmm. selfish, sure, but... But co-sleeping, that is the most normal thing because mom and baby typically do get the best sleep. Yes. Yep. That's oh why I've told people for years, like, oh, you're tired? Well, can I give you a little tip? You know, if you just lay down, you can sleep. <laughs> you know, usually your boobs are big enough just to like have hanging out. So <laughs> yeah, anyway.
So my son is now almost 17, um, and when he was about uh, close to four, we kind of did the same thing as we did when we got pregnant with him. We were like, well, we're supposed to have more kids, you know, but man, my two first, first two kids were hard. They were just super emotional, full of energy. Uh, they were hard. And then living in New York City on top of that and having to schlep them all over town, I was just, I wasn't really super stoked on having a third. Um, but you did wait four years between each kid? Five between the first two, four and a half between the next two. Wow. And then two years between those, the last two. But yeah, it's hard having kids in New York and we lived in a small space and, but you know, again, we were trying to be good Mormons and we felt like, you know, we're supposed to have kids so we'll get pregnant with another one. And I mean, I, I say this and then I'm, it sounds bad. Of course, like I love my kids. I was super happy to be pregnant. It was just, it wasn't because I was feeling this urge that I must be pregnant, you know? Um, it was just more logical. Uh, so anyway, yeah, I get pregnant and my pregnancy again, super easy, super great. Um, and we get to the, I'm seeing the same midwife. I love her. She's amazing. We get to the end of the pregnancy. Oh, I started seeing a homeopath. That's right. Uh, at the beginning of the pregnancy and I didn't get cholestasis, which is awesome. And so I saw her most of the pregnancy, which I feel like that really helped balance my body. So, um, yeah, I'm, you know, 40 weeks. My sister, my younger sister is there. She was probably 11 or, oh no, maybe she was 12 or 13 at the time. And um, I really wanted her at the birth. So we start our induction and I'm taking castor oil where I'm doing herbs. I'm giving myself a membrane sweep every night, like seriously, every night before bed. I'm sticking my fingers up there. I'm like sweeping around. This baby did not want to come, okay? I just was forcing this. I did not want to just surrender. So anyway, of course he doesn't come when my sister's there. She leaves because she has to, she started school. School is starting, so she had to go. And um, I was super sad, but he ended up coming a few days after that because I think I did another dose of castor oil and it just worked. So. I was almost 41 weeks with him and his labor and birth were just perfect and amazing and beautiful and wonderful. And again, loved every contraction, like only felt pain, I guess, when I, when, uh, his head was about to come out and I felt the ring of fire. And then I was like, Oh man, this is intense. I don't think I like this. And then I was pushing him out and it was over. But prior to that, like the whole labor literally just loved it. You know, I just loved it. We were all together as a family. My kids were there. It was just beautiful. And it was daytime and my best friend was there taking pictures. She was a photographer. So it was perfect. I loved, loved it. How long did it end up being? Um, I don't know, maybe, I don't know. Like a day Not or less? even, like I, probably nine to five, something okay. like that. Yeah. <laughs> nine to five. Yeah, it was something like that. I remember it was early in the morning. And then probably when it started picking up was around nine and then I gave birth to him at five. So yeah. And he's, he's, oh, he's such an amazing kid. So amazing. He was so hyper, not hyper, but just full of energy when he was little and didn't let us sleep ever. He was up at 4am every day. He was a wild, but he is, he's just so full of joy. He brings us 
so much joy and happiness now. He's, he's so great. But I just thought those years, those couple of years, I was like, I don't even know how I'm getting through this. You're so full of energy and I'm just tired and I have these kids and yeah. But so that birth was great. Um, and then about a year and a half after that, it was very logical. We're just like, do we want another one? Let's not wait anymore because this is getting silly. Like we've been parenting for a long time. We could have been done. So we get pregnant with my last one. And I think because it was so close together, I didn't have time to replenish my nutrients. And I ended up being really sick, um, for about 15 weeks till about 15 weeks. And it was really hard at the beginning. Um, and then once that was over, then I was fine and enjoying life and um, loving being pregnant again and had the same midwife and did the exact same thing when I hit 40 weeks. I was pushing this baby out. I wanted to have this baby. And my, again, my sister was there. She's 17 at this time. So I guess she was probably 14 or 15 at the other birth. But, um, but I really wanted her there. So... I start doing the membrane sweeps and the, I did castor oil probably only twice that time because it was just so disgusting. I just, I was like, I am not doing that if I can avoid it. Um, so I end up doing castor oil one night. I did like the chocolate pudding thing and that put me into labor. So I labored all night. I remember that one very vividly because it kept waking me up, but I was in a dream state. So I was just like, why do I keep waking up? And then I would go back to sleep. And then when I woke up, I was like, oh, this is it. And so that was at 5 a.m. And I called my midwife at 7. She lived outside the city. Um, and it could take anywhere from 40 minutes to two hours for her to get there because you just never know. And if anyone is familiar with New York, we have uh, the UN General Convention. And um, it happens every year in September. And we lived right by the UN. So it's an absolute madhouse for weeks where streets will be blocked off because a dignitary is driving by. So it'll be blocked off for 20 minutes because he might be driving by at some point in time, but you just have to wait. And then the streets are, I mean, literally it's, it's a gridlock. It's crazy. So that was a, not a fun time of year to live in our neighborhood. Um, so I called her at seven because I kind of, I just wanted to make sure because she lived far away. I wanted to just really make sure. So I call her and she's like, you should have called me at five. You know, it's going to, it's going to take me a while to get there. And I was like, oh, it's okay. Like the last labor was kind of long, so it's fine. Um, well, no, things like totally picked up. So this is the labor where I didn't have fun because it was going so fast. And, um, I, I was excited, but I was also in more pain because I wasn't just surrendering. I wasn't enjoying. I was like, when is she going to be here? Yeah. You're so worried. So worried about her coming. And I said, well, can I get in the tub? This is just me outsourcing all of my freaking authority. I was like, can I get in the tub? We have the tub set up. She's like, well, if you want me to be there, don't get in the tub because you're going to have that baby as soon as you get in the tub. Her assistant or her student was there. She was a full-fledged midwife in the UK, but she had to get relicensed here in the States. Like, why couldn't I, why was I not okay with her being there? A lot of the reason was because we were so tight. We worked together a lot, like as a doula, as her assistant, I, we just had such a good relationship. I really wanted her there just because this was going to be our last birth together. We were moving and out of the city and I knew it was going to be our last birth together. So it was just sort of more nostalgia, which is so silly. So I'm literally holding this baby in, pacing around my apartment. I'm checking myself. Cause I'm just like, okay, how, cause she had taught me how to do vaginal exams. So I'm 
checking myself and I'm like, oh my God, I'm like seven centimeters. Where is she? Okay. Oh, now I think I'm eight centimeters. What's going on? Where is she? Why isn't she here? But she's just stuck in gridlock traffic trying to get to my house. Right. So it took her two hours and, um, she, I finally see her cross the Avenue that's by my house. And I'm like, okay, she's going to be here any minute. So I get in the tub and I had him 10 minutes. I mean, she walked in the door and I pushed him out, you know? So then I hemorrhaged, um, really bad. And, um, I passed out. I had, she was doing bimanual compression. So like one hand inside my, uh, like vagina up inside, squeezing my uterus from the inside, squeezing my uterus from the outside. Like I just was gushing blood. I had an IV of Pitocin. I had Cytotec and Methogen in my butt. Like I had, ever, she pulled out all the stops, right? Yeah. So, and I'm just bleeding. I pass out. And then I come to, and I was never scared. I was just like, I think I might be passing out. And then I passed out and then I came to, and everyone's like totally trauma. My sister was traumatized. My daughter was traumatized. Like my husband, I apparently, he was like beside himself, but I missed all that because <laughs> I was passed out. And then I was fine. And I was like, what's the big deal, you guys? What's going on? You know, but everyone was freaking out. And so my story has been, for almost so that was 10 years ago so probably for nine years my story was I hemorrhaged if I have another baby what am I gonna have to do to be able to prevent that hemorrhage like maybe I was deficient maybe I needed to tone my uterus more maybe just all the maybe I need to make sure to have like extra Pitocin on hand or like someone who knows how to put IVs in you know just preparing for this emergency and now my perspective has changed. I don't know if you want me to touch yeah, on that yeah, now. Yeah, that it's so important because <clears throat> the fear of hemorrhage is very high mm -hmm. and you lived it and yeah. now you have a new perspective. Yeah, so I you know, in my I started sorry, okay, so <laughs> let's back up. I started uh, doing an apprenticeship to become a a CPM in 2020, like January, 2020. And, um, you know, the, the stuff that I had learned from my own midwife as I went to birth with her, um, she was a CNM. You have to be a CNM to practice home birth in New York, um, state. And so I learned just sort of more medical way of doing things, even though it was very natural and holistic, it was still more very hands-on and less trust. Um, Fear-based. Fear, Fear-based. She was very trusting, but it was it was just more hands-on. I don't feel like she came from a place of fear, but maybe she, maybe that's what it is. Um, but yeah, it's like, always check for the cord. Like, check the cord. Because I was at a couple of births where she wasn't there yet because she was coming from far away. So she that's what we liked working. She liked working with me. She trusted me. She knew, like, if I got to the mom's first, like, it would be fine. And she could trust me to call her when I need. she needed to be there and... And whatnot. Anyway, so she would, she would say, like, check for the cord. Okay, the baby's coming out. All right, check for the cord. And it's like, now I know you don't have to do that, you know. But, um, and, like, she would tell me, you know, first-time moms, they have to push. Like, you just have to push if you're a first-time mom. And that is the rhetoric that was spewed out in my training, too, was that the, the first-time moms have to push. Like, okay, they're tired. Well, they need to save their energy because they're going to have to push and work so hard to get this baby out. So that's what I believe. That was my belief system. And then my, my big belief was that like hemorrhage, you know, can happen at any time and it's really dangerous. I mean, yes, of course it's dangerous. Women across the world die from hemorrhage, but 
what is causing the hemorrhage. Exactly. Right? It, it's more looked at as random. Yes. Mm -hmm. So during my training as a midwife, I, oh, I just saw so much fear. So much fear. It was just rampant. And I wasn't fearful, but then I was like, I'm not fearful, but why? And my sister was a really good mentor for me at this time. She, um, the sister who had the home birth, she ended up becoming a birth doula way after I did. Um, actually, probably almost 10 years after I did. I was like done being a doula and she became a doula. And then she built an amazing practice. She went to hundreds of births. Um, now she does like online stuff. I mean, she's just amazing and so wise. And she has never feared birth. And we would talk and she would say, yeah, but, yeah, but. And I would say, uh, yeah, but, you know, we would just kind of go back and forth because I'm like, why are you trusting this? I see this and I'm learning this stuff. And um, yeah, I just like, I trusted it, but I didn't. It was, it was really interesting. So then I was introduced to the Free Birth Society and that changed, that was the second thing that changed my whole, whole paradigm. Um, so yeah, when I started listening to these stories, I was like, oh my God, these women have no one there and they're having these great outcomes and they're just trusting and they are not having someone tell them when to push and um, just all these things that I wasn't seeing in my training. And um, so I started, you know, sharing my ideas with the midwives I was working for and I was being shut down left and right, girl. Like I was this radical thinker, like how could you feel that way? What are you talking about? That is not how it works. You know, that's so dangerous. What if, you know, so I was like, oh, maybe I'm not right. It was, it was hard. It was really hard because I'm like, I, so then when I became in charge of births, because you go through a time where you're just observing and then you're participating and then you're in charge of the births, I was trying to do things from my perspective, my new perspective of trusting birth and just allowing things to happen. And then I was being shut down and then I ended up getting fired from my apprenticeship. And I was told that I trust birth too much. And the midwife that I worked for said, I don't trust birth at all. And you trust birth too much like this. I don't, I don't like the way you do it. And what? yeah. And it was at that time that, so this was, I mean, this was so recent that I really was able to reflect back on my last birth experience because, okay, I'm a little bit all over the place. So this midwife that I worked for had a lot of hemorrhages, a lot. She also brought a team with her and the team wasn't necessarily people that this mom knew very well. Okay. So I'm listening to the Free Birth Society. I'm seeing that, hearing that perspective. Then I'm seeing a whole different thing in my training every day. And then I'm like, wait a minute, why does she have so many hemorrhages? Why are women getting transferred a lot? Why is this happening? And I start putting these puzzle pieces together and I'm like, oh my God, like it's the intervention. It, and, and the intervention is not even necessarily like, you know, what you think of as intervention. It's people coming into your space that you don't necessarily know. It's blood pressure checks when you're in the throes of labor. It's fetal monitoring when you're in the throes of labor. It's talking to you. It's charting. It's people having conversations in the room that you're trying to labor in. It's so many things. And, and that's intervention that happens at home birth. Mm -hmm. All the time. Yeah. Yeah. At every home birth. Um, when you're, when the midwife is, is licensed by the state. 
So, uh, so I start looking at my last birth experience and I'm like, oh my God, I hemorrhaged because I held the baby in. I literally was standing at the window, watching at the window, feeling this intense pressure and just kind of crossing my legs. Like I have to pee a little bit and I'm just like, okay, where is she? Where is she? Okay. I'm having a contraction. Is she here yet? You know? And because you're centering her, mm -hmm. yeah. you're centering her yeah. over yourself during birth. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I couldn't surrender. I, I, I couldn't just let go. And I also didn't surrender in going into labor. So I, I forced that. So I took the castor oil, who knows what side effects, you know, oh, it's natural. It's natural. No, it's not. You're forcing a baby out. So it's not natural. Um, so there's all those things that, that, you know, I really had this wake up call and I was like, Oh my God, that is not my story. My story has been totally wrong. Yeah. Your hemorrhage was not random. Yeah. It wasn't random. Um, so you, yeah, because it could be castor oil forcing your baby to be out mm -hmm. before it's ready. There's always a natural consequence to meddling with nature. Mm -hmm. And then you're centering a midwife over yourself. Mm -hmm. Yep. And these are all interventions that happen all the time at home birth. Yeah. Sadly, they do. Yep. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that was, that was a big, big, big shift for me in my paradigm. And I just knew when I got fired from my apprenticeship, it would, I knew we weren't in alignment. And she had told me a couple of times, like, you should just be a free birth midwife. Don't get licensed. Just be unlicensed. But I was like, no, I have to provide for my family because I was divorced at this time. I have to provide for my family. I need the license to be legitimate. My ego was totally ruling that decision because I was like, I want the cutest website and I want to have all these followers on Instagram and I'm going to have these picture perfect blah, 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 and just ego, 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 right? Yeah. Yeah, because I'm going to be the best and coolest midwife in the whole city of Phoenix. Like, that was my goal. Fame. Totally. <laughs> I was going to be famous. Yes. No. So it was just, it was just so in my whole decision, but that was my decision. So I just, you know, I, things could have ended peacefully with us because if I had just been like, you're right, I should do that, you know? And then they ended up getting a little ugly because, um, yeah, just some things happened at a birth that she didn't like. And I have reviewed the, this birth with so many people. And they're like, that eh, doesn't sound like a problem to me. But to her, I was negligent. And, you know, I was just trusting and allowing the process to unfold. And that is not what she wanted to see happen. And so um, it was the end. It felt like the end of the world to me. I mean, I was beside myself. And then I just was like, why am I fighting this? This is this is the direction that it was supposed to go because it, I am not licensed midwife material. I am a free spirit. I am a free thinker. No one is going to tell me what to do. I was in a box my whole, in 36 years, I was in a box. I was controlled as a child by my parents. I was controlled by the church. I was controlled by my husband. Like, fuck that. I am not going down that path. That is not my path. And so it just totally freed me to say, okay, I want to serve women in this beautiful way, this autonomous way. And that cannot be done with a license. And so I really fought that for a while. I was calling everyone in town, trying to get a new preceptor and every, I mean, doors, like when I started the process, every door was open. 
when I was <clears throat> ending the process and trying to continue with my life, because I had done all my my births, but then they wouldn't allow the birth to count, the last birth to count. So now I had to find someone who I could pick up a, one last birth with and, and stick with for like, you know, four months or something. And, oh, every door closed. All the doors were closed. And, and one, actually, um, one birth center said, we would love to have you. That would be so great. Um, but are you uh, COVID vaccinated? And I was like, are you serious? And I totally could have lied because I don't think they would have been like, show me your card. I could have been like, yeah, I am. But I was just, that obviously that doesn't resonate with me to, to lie. And so I just said no. And she's like, oh, sorry, we require the vaccine. I'm like, you're a birth center and you require the vaccine. They were also requiring double masking during births for the providers. So anyway, that would not have been an alignment. Um, when, you're, when you're talking about that though, it really does feel and is a religion. Licensed midwifery mm -hmm. because you started questioning. Mm -hmm. <laughs> then you got all the doors shut. Yeah, That's dogma. Mm -hmm. And we can have dogma in any type of scenario in life, in any organization or, you know, what's the word? In any grouping, there can be dogma because you started questioning, you started trusting too much, and you got fired for it. When you start questioning black and white thinking, you get punished. Yeah. Yeah. So I love when you start talking about your dream clients because you're now this dangerous midwife. Mm -hmm. You like your clients at a certain level of awareness. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And, I, and you know, I've had to, I've had to fine tune that over, over time, but, um, but the people who find me are wanting a free birth, but they're not wanting to be alone. And there's another, one other unlicensed midwife in the area. And she told me people don't really want to be alone. They just don't want to be messed with. And that's the thing is that, you know, a midwife, a licensed midwife can say until the cows come home, Oh, we don't have to do this. We don't have to do that. But I mean, from my own experience, those are just words. That's not actually how they operate. And so women are being bamboozled and because they think that they're getting, you know, this one thing and then they, they, they finish their birth up and they're like, what just happened? This is not exactly what I told you I wanted, you know? So for me, that's something that I feel like I offer people is that I'll be there and I will hold space and if you want to be messed with, I'll mess with you. If you don't want to be messed with, I will not. And when, if you say, will you check me? I'll talk you out of it because you don't need that. That's outside authority. Like you have all the knowledge you, you need inside of yourself. And, and I feel like that's all some, some women need is just somebody who's standing by, not who's going to jump in and do something, but who's just there to, so you can look at and she can nod at you. Like that's sometimes... Oftentimes I walk in, I hold the camera and that's all I do. And then I clean up and they love it. I'm like, oh, we're so glad you were here because that was a lot of cleanup, <laughs> you know? <clears throat> yeah, you want women that do not want an authority figure. Mm -hmm. And that's who you attract now because that's like the vibration and frequency you're at. Mm -hmm. And that's who you attract. Yeah. Because a lot of women can hire a home birth midwife and want a home birth but still outsource that authority figure. And I think a good test is asking a woman, you know, what, 
how would it feel if you gave birth really fast and your midwife didn't make it? Mm -hmm. To me, that's like the real test of whether she can really trust herself. Mm -hmm. Okay, I'm so curious because you've had four births, your midwife, so much time has passed. You have a microphone right here. Mm -hmm. What do you want to say to women of what you have learned about birth, your body, postpartum, parenthood, anything. What's your um, TED talk? Oh, geez. Well, it's going to be long. How, many, how much time do we have? Um, no, I just think that, um, you know, some of the big takeaways are surrender, you know, just surrendering to what is. And, you know, I learned that from not allowing my body to go into labor and really forcing that and not just enjoying the moment always thinking, I mean, this has been my life um, prior to the last couple years, just always looking for the next thing. What's the next big milestone that we're going to hit? And, you know, just not living in the moment, um, honoring your postpartum time. My goodness. I am so, <laughs> I'm so big on that with the moms that I work with because, you know, I'm not going to tell anyone what to do ever, but honoring that time is just, it's so important for your healing, for your body, for your mind, um, for the bond with your baby. And when we just jump back into life too quickly, it's just, it's ignoring almost what our body has just done and this great, big, intense thing that our body has done. Um, because it's mental, physical, and spiritual. And so just not allowing yourself to process that and to really, really... Um, give importance to, to how big of a thing that was. Um, what do you feel like in intact postpartum looks like? <clears throat> oh my God. Well, I mean, it can look different for a lot of people, but I, I, it's definitely harder when you have children. So having one baby versus four babies or three babies is, it's going to look different, but having support is paramount. I mean, you must have support. Um, hopefully you have a partner who can help you, but I tell partners, like, don't let her do anything. You are her servant for the next few weeks, you know, and, um, staying in bed as long as possible. You know, usually it's five days, which is fine. Um, but just really allowing yourself to rest and sleep every chance you get and just bond with the baby. Like your only job is to be with the baby during that time. You take care of the baby. Someone else can change the baby. That's fine. But, you know, you just, that bond, enforcing that bond is so, so important. And allowing your body to really heal is so important. And it's because I learned that because I didn't do it. I moved 10 days after I had my fourth. And I, I was pale. My lips were white. I have pictures where I'm just like, oh my gosh, what was I thinking? And I packed up a house. It was already half packed. And we moved, you know, um, states. So it was a big move. And I was just determined. And so I didn't honor that postpartum at all. I didn't, I didn't allow myself to just replenish my nutrients after I was so depleted. Um, my midwife said, and again, this is what she said. I don't know. She estimated I lost about 1,500 cc's. So she was saying that's usually when they have you do a blood transfusion in the hospital. So I lost a lot and I did not, I was like, I'm just going to eat steak every day and that's going to be fine. You know, I didn't take any extra supplements. I didn't sleep any extra. I was just go, go, go. Cause we were moving. So we had a going away party that my friend threw me. I threw 
a going away party for my daughter and her friends. <laughs> I was taking my kids to the park because I was meeting up with people that I was saying goodbye to. We had lived there for eight years and so I had a lot of friends that I wanted to make sure I saw before I left. So yeah, I was go, go, go. And I didn't tear, so I was like, I feel fine. My vagina doesn't hurt, so I'm fine, you know. Um, but it kind of makes sense being the person where you're looking forward to the next thing. Yeah. Because you're pregnant for nine months and you just want the baby born, which is why you induced yourself every single time. The next thing, you need your mm -hmm. baby. And then once the baby's born, you can't even sit mm -hmm. in peace with your baby because you need the next thing. Yep. The party, the park dates, the moving. Mm -hmm. You can't just like sit and be present and enjoy that postpartum bubble. Because the next thing. Yep. Yes. And it's really sad to me now. Um, it's just, I, it's stuff you can only learn from having gone through it and perspective and age. I feel like it's... Not only. Not only. This is why I have the podcast. Oh, that's true. That's true. You can learn from other people's experiences if you're smart. But I'm the, I'm the person who, when you tell, tell me the stove is hot, I'm like, well, how hot is it? Let me just see. Yeah, this is free will. This is free yes. will. This is choice. You can literally walk the path. So many other people have walked mm -hmm. and learned the same lessons. Mm -hmm. Or you can learn from a wise woman, <laughs> take in the wisdom, be like, I'm going to choose something different. Yes. That's a choice that we have. It's amazing. And it's an amazing choice and one that I didn't really have access to. And it's really sad. And now just in the last year and a half, I've learned so much about presence and being in the moment and grounding yourself and taking deep breaths so that you can, you know, get out of fight or flight and then come back to the present moment and enjoy and recalibrate. And yeah, it's just, uh, just so many things like that, that I, I wish that I had learned before, but I didn't. And now I'm, you know, redirecting as my life continues. But yeah, so the postpartum time is so precious and beautiful. And I really urge women to just revel in that because it's so short. It feels long because it's intense and it's hard, but, um, but it's really so short when you look back on it. Um, yeah. Yeah. There's this woman, Nicole, that was on a healing birth episode. I think it's something about Nicole's three births and Cosmos or something. I'm going to forget the name, but she really carved out the most magical postpartum for her first baby, which is very rare, very rare. But her mom was a midwife, I think. So she knew to, you know, really revere that postpartum period and, and know it's sacred. So she prepared her husband, you know, like she's like, my job is to be with my baby all the time, keep that oxytocin high. That's it, that's my only job, is stay in that oxytocin high of me and my baby, peace, calm, kissing, loving, breastfeeding my baby, that's my only job. Your job is everything else, everything else. And during her postpartum, she said she felt so high on life. And it like brought me to tears when, she, when I was listening to the podcast, she says to her husband, I feel so good and I am so sorry that you will never have this opportunity to feel the way I feel. Mm -hmm. And that's true. Men will never have that opportunity in postpartum or birth to feel those high highs. Mm -hmm. And if we keep it so sacred the way it's supposed to be, we could be like the most high we've ever been. And it's, and it's like touching this place that men can never touch. 
and it's it's given to us women oh i love it so much that is a beautiful gift and that's something that i didn't talk about um that yeah after my birth it was it was such a high and i i rode that high for so many days it was just so amazing like i could not believe what I had done, what my body had done, what my baby and I had done together. It was just so exciting and I wanted to tell everybody about it. Um, yeah, you like touched God and you're like, I oh, want everyone to touch God like me. Oh my God. Well, I used to be, so, so when I when I was a doula, I was just, I was so young and naive. I just wanted to push my views on everybody. So everyone I'd meet, I would always, I had this little thing. I would say, oh, you're pregnant. That's so exciting. Where are you giving birth? And then they would tell me like, oh, you know, this hospital or that hospital. And I'd say, oh, that's, I've been there before. I'm a birth doula and that's so great. Do you have a doula? Do you have a birth plan? You know, I would just always like throw these things in and I'm sure people were just like, and in the Mormon community, every, so many pregnant moms. And so I would have this conversation a lot. And I think people were like, oh my God, can you just not, you know, this is what I'm doing. This is what I want to do. Um, but I just felt like I wanted to share this knowledge with everybody that there is a better way you know, and, and that's like, you talk about the ego. Like I felt like my way was the best way. And some people think that, you know, their plan C section is the best way, but I just really, I wanted to share it and shout it from the rooftops. Um, and the high, yeah, the high that I, I felt after each of my three home births was like no other. Oh, it is amazing. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Because you've had four births, because you've witnessed so many births, what do you feel like is a man's role in birth? And what about your husband with the four births that you went through? Yeah, I think that, um, you know, with our first birth, my husband was just a bystander. He was not involved at all. And that's not because he didn't want to be. It's because the hospital creates this environment where it's hard for men to be involved you know, I had cords coming out all over me and he didn't know where he could touch me. He didn't know where he could stand because oh, it felt like he was always in the way of a nurse or somebody coming in. He just, he wasn't sure. Um, and so, you know, the, the first home birth was so healing for both of us because once I learned about birth, I saw all the things that went wrong with my birth and that in the ways that I was disrespected and things that I want to do differently. And, um, and it was also very healing for him because he was able to step into the the partner role where at the hospital he was just like the dad you know he wasn't involved in that birth at all he held my hand but that's about it and um and at the home birth he was my support he was there every contraction he was he caught the baby when it came out you know uh when he came out <laughs> um and so that was so beautiful and healing for him to, to be able to say, yeah, this is my woman and this is our baby. And, you know, we gave birth together. Um, and I love that because your partner created the life too. And so they should be so involved. And I think it's more about, you know, my, our opinion that home birth is just better. And, you know, for the dad, for the mom, for the baby, for the whole family unit, because it just allows him to be so involved that he then can stake a claim on that baby and really go into protector mode, you know, versus just like, okay, my woman just had this baby. How was I involved? Is this my, like, it's just a, a disconnect, I guess. And so I love seeing dads at home births because it's, 
it's the two of them doing it together, you know? And, and, and you know, it's hard for me to see videos nowadays of sometimes, like there was a video going around where the dad tried to put a blanket on the baby and the midwife batted his hand away and put her blanket on the baby. And it's like, I don't want to be anywhere near that, that triad. You know, that is their time, their moment. I'm not going to be telling the dad, don't touch her like that. Don't touch the baby like that. You know, if he wants to catch the baby, great. I'm not going to be like, you have to do it just like this. It's not rocket science. You know, my hands don't need to be guiding his hands. He's just fine. You know, and, and I think that that when you subtly do those little things that undermine his, his, um, I don't know if it's his manhood, but just his place in the birth, it, it really makes an impact and it's subtle and it's subconscious, but it's still there. And I don't want to be a part of that. And so if a dad wants to catch the baby, awesome. Like I'll just be holding the camera or whatever. I mean, I don't catch babies. Mom catches the baby. Um, but if she can't, then the dad does it, you know, cause he's perfectly capable. <laughs> There's not much to it. <laughs> We don't have to include this if you don't want, but do you want to talk about circumcision or no? Oh God, always. <laughs> <laughs> we want men to have their natural penis. Yes. We're crazy women because we want that. Oh God, <laughs> I know. You know, it's... What was your journey with that? So I learned about it when I was pregnant with my second. Thank God my daughter was first. Because if she hadn't, I would have, she would have been circumcised. I mean, it just, it... I really feel like I dodged such a bullet there, having a girl first. Um, yeah, so I learned about circumcision. My husband and I talked about it, and we, you know, he didn't really know too much, but he trusted me, so we were just like, yeah, we're not going to do it. Um, but then when he really learned about it, because we, we kind of started reading about it, and we didn't watch a video, but I told him the process of it, and he cried. He was just like, why would my mom have put me through that? And he was so sad that he had, that had happened to him as a baby. Um, yeah, it was just a really intense moment. And so he was a hundred percent on board with not circumcising our boys. Why would we do that? Why do I have a piece of my body part body missing? You know, like he felt that so viscerally and I wish more men could really internalize that because oftentimes it's the dads who are fighting against the circumcision because the boy must look like me. It's like, how long are you going to be naked with this child? It's like, they're never going to notice. My boys never notice because you know what? You're, you probably shouldn't be naked with your kid when they're five or six years old and aware enough, you know? Um, yeah, kids just don't notice and bodies come in all shapes and sizes too. And what an amazing way to say, oh, we're different because my skin was cut off when I was a baby. You know, and then bringing awareness to that. Like, wow, that's a barbaric procedure. Why did they do that to you? Like opening up a conversation. And so, oh man, I'm very passionate about circumcision. And um, it's it's a hard one when people ask me my opinions. It's it's like, I can't, I don't even have an opinion because it's just, no, you don't do it. Yeah. There is no reason to do it. And usually what I'll say is, would you circumcise your daughter? Yep. And of course not. I mean, that's, that's crazy. That's, that's barbaric. barbaric. But cutting off a baby's foreskin, that is their first sexual experience. A violence. And then it's a violent one. Yep. Mm -hmm. Someone is touching their penis, which feels nice. And then they're mutilating it. What does that do to their psyche? Why are we bringing boys into the world 
in a violent way in the hospital because it is violent oftentimes and and then we're perpetuating violence onto them by cutting off their most sensitive part i mean it's it's so so mind-boggling to me i can't even understand and the re religious circles i think is more mind-boggling yeah they talk about in the bible blah, blah blah but you know there's huge arguments that the circumcision in the bible is was a nick of blood mm -hmm. and now nowadays it's the entire foreskin mm -hmm. which has so many nerve endings oh my gosh i can't even begin to explain the protective mechanism of the foreskin. So religious people that circumcise, which that's often the case, to me it's, it's mind boggling because you are changing the way God made the male body. And that is beyond me. What if, what if a baby was born and you just you know, cut off that pinky finger? Cause we don't need the pinky finger. You just, I, we, I, we can improve on God's design. It's barbaric because it is. Mm -hmm. And all you have to do is apply the slicing to any body part and you see for what it is. Mm -hmm. It's violent, it's barbaric, it's absolutely uh, brainwashing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because you're not questioning. Yep. You know, even if somebody says, you know, I, you know what do you think about circumcision? And I tell them all that. They're like, well, but what about, inf what if, what if they get inf an infection when they're little? I'm like, so you're going to cut off a body part to prevent maybe like a little infection that might, may or may not happen at some point throughout their life. You might as well cut out your eye because yeah. you don't want to get an eye infection. Or pink eye. Pink eye is really bad, yeah. I've heard. We do yeah. not want to get pink eye. We should just cut just out take it people's out. eyes so they don't get pink Our eye. teeth, let's just wear dentures. I mean, you could, ex you could extrapolate that to anything. It's, it's absurd. And, and like I, so I have three uncircumcised boys and one of my kids had a red penis twice, I think. And I just left it alone because it was probably going to clear up on its own. You know, I kept an eye on it. Is it still red a few days later? No? Oh, okay, see, it's fine. It's like, it's, oh. Yeah. Yeah, yeah once, you, once, you, once you see the light of circumcision, which to me, it's just, a, it's a no-brainer. It's, would you slice off any other body part to, pro, to protect an infection? And you can, you can talk that way about birth too. Once you have that conviction of home birth, why would you go to the hospital? Why would you outsource your power? Why would you allow somebody to tell you what to do in this natural primal process? Why? Why would you allow someone to put their fingers in your vagina to tell you that, yeah, you're probably gonna have a baby in a couple hours. It's absurd, you know? I just, and so it's, it's that way with so many things. Once your eyes are opened, they can't be closed. It's like you can't put the toothpaste back. And so then it just becomes something that you want to tell people about and preach about and, and share and hope that you reach some people. And so that's what I love that you're trying to do with, with all of your stuff because it's, it's so important. Um, because how we come into this world informs so much of who will become and how we give birth affects so much.
you know, were we, were we talked down to, were we supported, were we violated, were we whatever. Yeah, why we're so passionate about birth is because if a woman can be in her power and do the hardest thing, usually the hardest thing she ever, she never thought she could do, if you could do that, you're going into your motherhood being like, I can do anything. Mm -hmm. But powerful women are a threat to the system. Yep. Because <laughs> if we realize, I don't need anyone to give birth, I don't, or I don't need any help, I don't need to pay this midwife. I don't need to pay this doctor. Well, then the whole system collapses. And, and then when you birth in power and you realize your power, your autonomy as a mother to make decisions and to figure things out on your own and to lead your family in, in, in this intuitive knowledge, you don't need doctors. You don't need so many things. You, you don't need babies are us or whatever it is, you know? We don't need any of that bullshit because we have our own intuition. And, and so, like, I've told people this before that it's all part of this, in, you, you can call me crazy, that's fine, this insidious plan from, like, the powers that be to, to just silence this, this amazing tool that we have of, of autonomy and power and birth. Because yeah, if we can do that, we can do anything. We will be unstoppable. We could run the whole world. We don't need men. We don't need, I mean, we need men, but. Yeah, we, <laughs> we want like, their leadership. We, we do, we love men. I love men. They're great. But but it's just like we, yes. We, we don't need systems of fear. No, we don't need systems. We, yeah. But fear drives everything. Everything. Yep. Yep. Why do we go to well baby checks? Why? Uh, yes, vaccines. But we want that authority figure, the doctor, to tell us that, yep, yep, your baby's okay. Okay, they're growing. Yep, they're on this growth curve, looking good. Why? Yeah, it's a system of fear to keep us in line. Mm -hmm. And so if we actually trusted our feminine instinct, we would be in so much trust that a lot of systems would fail. fail. That's the truth. It's the truth.